Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Jane Rumble is the head of the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office's Polar Regions Department. She's a senior civil servant who supports the British government in policy and decision-making for both the Arctic and Antarctic regions. Jane is a geographer by background and a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. During 2018, she was awarded an Honorary Doctorate of Science from the University of Leeds and an OBE for services to polar science, marine conservation and diplomacy. Today, we'll be talking all things Antarctica, a perfect podcast for A-level geography students interested in global systems and global governance. Jane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Could we start by outlining what the FCDO do and what your role is there? Yeah, so the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office um, basically advises the uh, government on foreign and development uh, issues. Uh, So I'm the head of the Polar Regions Department in the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. So I represent the UK at all Antarctic Treaty system meetings, uh, which is the annual meeting of the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting and the annual meeting of the Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources, uh, known as CAMELA. Quite Uh, a mouthful. It is, yes. That's why we always call it CAMELA. And we also uh, look after the UK's interest in the Arctic. So we kind of coordinate across government and then we represent the UK at the Arctic Council. Then using our polar um, experience, which is predominantly relating to environmental and ocean management, um, we also deliver for the UK the Blue Belt, um, which is marine protection around uh, various overseas territories. And your Twitter account says that you're interested in all things polar, uh, ice, oceans, mountains and everything in between. Um, Specifically, what does Antarctica offer? Well, Antarctica is is kind of awe-inspiring, basically. It's it's one of the the, the most uh, serene places, whilst also one of the most wild. Uh, the, the ice goes on forever. Uh, the mountains kind of rise out of it spectacularly. It's, it's a geographer's paradise, really, because it's kind of a, a pristine environment that you can actually see uh, ge- geographic processes being undertaken. Uh, so glaciology was always one of my favourite subjects, uh, and to see it actually kind of doing its thing in Antarctica is is quite amazing. And to see ice tumbling down the side of a mountain to kind of get that glimmer of, of blue inside the, the white that comes down the side of the mountain is just incredible. Is that how you started off? Were you a glaciologist before you moved into civil service? Well, actually, I, I've always done a very balanced uh, ge- geographical kind of study. So uh, when I was uh, at college studying geography, uh, I was very much 50-50 human and uh, environment. I was very uh, inspired by the kind of understanding of place, you know, kind of how this, how the places become like they are uh, through geographic processes, etc. But what's their future and, and who lives there and what does that mean for the people that are, are being involved there and, and what's their sort of future look like? So, yeah, so very, very much kind of, you know, classic uh, human and physical geographer entwined in one, really. It's perfect for Antarctica, a foot in both camps. Exactly. Even more so for the Arctic, actually, of course, where, where people actually live in the Arctic. But uh, indeed, yeah, the, the sort of the human conquering of, of Antarctica is, is, is fascinating. 
And there have been numerous British expeditions and, and various scientific adventures from the first sighting of Terra Australis Incognita by Captain James Cook to the International Geophysical Year in 1957-58 and Sir Ranulph Fiennes' crossing unsupported in 92-93. Do you have any favourite adventures uh, did you, or any personal stories of the, of the continent? Many, many. Um, that's a tough question, really. Uh, I suppose my favourite stories relate to the very early explorers because, I mean, they really did set off without knowing what it was they were going to be encountering. Um, so, you know, I've, I've, I've been to the uh, hydrographic office down in Taunton and they've got some of Shackleton's kind of early sketch maps of Antarctica where he was walking uh, to uh, reasonably close to the South Pole before he decided that he needed to turn back. Uh, also Worsley when he was trying to chart where they were in the Weddell Sea before the the, the ship sank, uh, which is sort of a big piece of white paper with with a few kind of soundings on it as, as everything was unknown. So, yeah, I think I'm, I'm probably a bit of a Shackleton fan if it, if it comes down to it. And British uh, scientific activity seems to be concentrated in and around the Weddell Sea. You, you mentioned um, uh, Shackleton there, who obviously lost his, his ship in, in the Weddell Sea. Um, why does a lot of British exploration and scientific activity seem to focus in, in that part of the Southern Ocean? Well, a lot of it's to do with history. So the UK was the first to claim territory in Antarctica, which we did in 1908, uh, and it was in the peninsula region, which is the, the kind of bit that sticks out of Antarctica up towards South America. Uh, and that's where the, the UK kind of exercised jurisdiction over those who were um, originally going down to Antarctica, sadly, to plunder it for whales and seals. And they were getting their licenses from the then governor of the Falkland Islands. Uh, so that was the kind of area that there was a lot of British activity Um and the bit that we claimed. So that was the bit that the UK originally um, started to establish stations on. Um, but things have moved on considerably. And, and now our scientists kind of go where the science takes them. So although we have, um, you know, our big stations are based still in, in the British Antarctic Territory, which is the bit that the UK claims, uh, actually, the British Antarctic Survey is now predominantly working um, in an area that, that was unclaimed by anyone, actually, before the, there was an agreement to, to stop claims under the Antarctic Treaty. Uh, and they're looking at uh, a glacier called Thwaites Glacier, uh, which is on the West Antarctic ice sheet. Um, and we're looking at uh, the stability of that. The West Antarctic ice sheet contains five metres of sea level. Uh, it hasn't always existed. Uh, when we had more than 400 parts per million of carbon previously, it, it didn't exist. So looking very much at, at what does what does climate change mean for the stability of that ice sheet and, and what the future of the, of the Antarctic will look like and indeed the consequential impacts on sea level rise and other impacts for the rest of the world. Am I right in thinking that Thwaites Glacier in, in Western Antarctica is nicknamed the Doomsday Glacier? Is, was that the right one? It, it is that one, yeah. It's kind of a, a media a media kind of thing. Um, uh, yes, uh, it's, it's, it's because um, it's one of the main drainers from the West Antarctic ice sheet. So the theory is that if this glacier kind of really speeds up in draining, then it, it, it potentially could cause the collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet. And that is uh, a fairly significant um, event. Uh, one of many kind of big tipping points that, that we see in the polar regions, uh, which are the most, uh, the fastest warming places on the planet. So, yeah, understanding them is absolutely critical. And 
going back to my teaching days, I, I seem to remember that the Western Antarctic ice sheet is the one that's melting and losing ice mass, and the Eastern Antarctic ice sheet is growing. Is that right, or is that uh, a simplification? I think in in yeah to an extent. Uh, I don't think the East Antarctic is growing a lot, um, and I, I think we expect it to start to to warm um, in due course. But yeah, the West Antarctic ice sheet is uh, is pinned um, by uh, a number of kind of islands. And then there's a lot of the ice which would basically be underwater. So the West Antarctic ice sheet has got warmer ocean water kind of melting it from underneath, whereas the East Antarctic is a, is a big continental landmass, kind of like Australia. So the ice is out of the water. Uh, so it's atmospheric kind of warming that's um, going to affect that. Yeah, but yeah, the, the West Antarctic is, is the, the one that we're looking at most closely. And, and it's melting quicker. It's probably more accurate. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a couple of uh, UK scientific bases, um, and one of which you said was in um, an unclaimed form of no man's land. Um, what are the bases? I, I seem to remember one's called Halley. Is that right? And they move around as well. That's what you said. That's right. So, uh, yes. So going back to going back to our kind of historical um, arrival on Antarctic continent, we we established the UK established uh, a number of bases because in those days you could only really get around Antarctica as far as your husky dogs were prepared to run you. Uh, now things have dramatically moved on. Now uh, we have aircraft, we have ships. So we've we've got a, a major station uh, at Rothera, which is kind of halfway down the peninsula on the western side, uh, and that's the main logistical hub. It has a runway, so we can fly there from uh, Chile or from the Falkland Islands. Um, it's got uh, kind of lots of very good accommodation for scientists. It's a good kind of staging point to then fly people further into the continent. Uh, so that's the main station, and that's operated all year round. So there are people there right now. Um, and then we have uh, Halley, which is over on the eastern side of the British Antarctic Territory. So on the other side of the Weddell Sea, kind of towards the part of Antarctica that is south of South Africa. Uh, and that's Halley 6. So uh, there was a Halley 1, Halley 2, Halley 3, Halley 4, Halley 5, Halley 6. Uh, and they've been, uh, they've been on uh, a floating ice shelf called the Brunt Ice Shelf. Uh, and this ice shelf kind of flows out towards the sea, so it gets a point gets to a point where the the, the station can no longer be occupied. Um, at the moment, we're only occupying this station uh, during the summer uh, because it's on a floating ice sheet, um, which is uh, showing signs of of cracking. Um, now, cracking ice sheets is is you know a, a regular phenomenon. It's not necessarily connected to climate change. Um, but the speed with which uh, ice shelves are um, changing in Antarctica is is something that we're obviously keeping a close eye on. So for safety reasons, that's only uh, we're only using that in the summer. Uh, and then we have another station called Sydney, which is right on the northern part of the Antarctic, actually uh, in the South Orkney Islands. Um, and that's uh, um, also a, a sort of summer only station, mainly looking at um, animals, so birds and mammals. And then we have a whole bunch of historic sites that are carefully looked after for us by the Antarctic Heritage Trust. Uh, and they tell the story of the kind of, you know, what it was like to be in Antarctica in the in the 40s and the 50s. Um, so we've, we've kind of kept some of those so that we can see the, the progression. Um, uh, and some of the stations have been given to other nations or we've kind of removed them. So, yeah, try to have a, a tidy, um, tidy scientific base uh, on the on the continent. If a young geographer is listening right now, what type of jobs might he or she find out there? Because I'm, 
I'm imagining that you need architects to design Halley one, two, three, four, five, six to move up the Brunei shelf and uh, engineers as well as scientists. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm a geographer, so I'm a little bit biased maybe, but I think, you know, with geography, you can, you can really do whatever you like. Uh, I mean, geography teaches you, um, uh, the kind of bigger picture and seeing the bigger picture, you know, is a key competence in, uh, in the public sector. I'm sure it is in the private sector as well, kind of, uh, and, and challenging things as well. The geography makes you curious. So, I mean, we've had a geographer as a prime minister. Uh, we've had geographers lead um, big FTSE 100 companies. Uh, so it can really take you wherever you wherever you, you deter- determine to go, I think, uh, uh, being a geographer. But certainly, yeah, in Antarctica, we need uh, a whole range of people. I mean, we need plumbers, we need carpenters to maintain the stations. Uh, and then obviously we need scientists who are, are really kind of at the cutting edge of um, glaciology, meteorology, atmospheric physics, uh, space weather, uh, all the things that we need to really understand Antarctica and the consequences it's going to have on the rest of the planet. Uh, tourism numbers have, have steadily risen, um, aside from the, the scientific work. Uh, and bar 2008, I think they've gone up and up and up to about 56,000 in the 2018-2019 season. Um, what challenges uh, does that influx bring to the continent? So people go to Antarctica and uh, they have the, the most amazing wilderness experience. And so kind of keeping Antarctica pristine and to give that amazing wilderness experience means that you need extremely careful management. Because if you turn up in Antarctica and there's already 300 people uh, at your landing site and they've left litter, um, you know, and the animals have fled, uh, this is not the experience that you want to have in Antarctica. So kind of governments and the tourist industry work really closely together to try to maintain uh, or try to ensure that we maintain Antarctica as pristine to ensure that we don't have more than one ship at one place at one time. We have a very high ratio of guides and expedition leaders to passengers to make sure that everybody is safe. Uh, everybody is moving slowly and cautiously, not interrupting the, the wildlife. Um, so, yeah, as the numbers increase, uh, obviously there's uh, pressure on how many ships are around, uh, how many different landing sites people are going to see, and making sure that we can keep that kind of safe and environmentally responsible tourism. Uh, 50,000 is, you know, it, it's, it is an exponential kind of growth that we were seeing, um, particularly before 2008 when there was the economic crash and then obviously everything stopped with the, the COVID pandemic. Um, but yes, we're very kind of concerned about making sure that that growth is manageable. I mean, Antarctica is a big place, uh, but nevertheless, there are some very key places that people want to go and see, uh, and we need to make sure that we're managing them carefully. In 1991, seven tour operators came together to form the IAATO to create environmentally safe and res- responsible travel. Um, could you tell us what the IAATO are and, and did they achieve that? Yeah, so that's the International Association of Antarctica Tour Operators, uh, commonly called IATO. Uh and yes, they now have, I think they have, well, I think it's about 50 members now um, of operators, uh, a lot a lot more who sell uh, Antarctic cruises or who are involved in supporting um, Antarctic uh, cruise activity or tourism activity. Uh, I think, yes, by and large, um, they, they have they have promoted self, safe and, and environmentally responsible tourism. Um, they've worked together to make sure that um, they can adhere to the requirements of only one ship at one place at one time and to make sure that they're training, uh, sharing best practice. Um, so, I mean, the, the members who are in IATO uh, are those who want to have a, a long business. 
So they want to be able to get to Antarctica every year, which means they need for it to be the place that they put in the brochures, which is, you know, pristine, but also safe. You're going to have an amazing experience. So it's in their interests to make sure that they don't do anything that's going to undermine that. Uh, so those who those members who go back year after year uh, work with uh, work with governments very um, productively. Some of the challenges we have maybe is is maybe more with with the sort of one off visits. Uh, so you know a, a yacht that goes down just once um, maybe thinks they can get away with it because no one's really looking. And you know unfortunately we have had some incidents of of breaking into historic sites, stealing historic artifacts. Um, which you know have have not been as a result of uh, um, well managed and organised tourism. It's been it's been kind of people who think that they're they're not being watched. So yeah, improving the the kind of monitoring and observation of everyone down there, which we do in in consort with the the, the well licensed tourism industry, is 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 key. Uh- Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think coal was was first discovered uh, as far back as 1909 during Shackleton's Nimrod expedition, um, which helped understanding uh, generally of continental drift. How big a problem will Antarctic resource extraction be in the future? Well, actually, uh, Antarctic resource extraction was more of a problem in the 80s when uh, the the Antarctic Treaty parties uh, negotiated a convention about um, the extraction of minerals from Antarctica. Uh, This didn't actually ever come into force, uh, partly because several countries um, said, well, you know, do we really want to be utilising Antarctica in this way? Because once you've taken minerals, you can't really do that in a a sustainable way. They don't don't come back for a very long time. So. Uh, this agreement never came into force. And instead, um, the treaty parties in 1991 uh, agreed the environmental protocol. Um, so that's going to turn 30, uh, 30 years since its signature this year. Uh, and that stated that, in fact, no commercial mineral activity would be permitted in Antarctica at all. Uh, so you cannot go to Antarctica and, and, and get minerals. I think in, in respect, you know, in, in terms of the future, this is an indefinite prohibition. So you would need a kind of consensus of, of countries to, to change that. Um, I don't think that's likely in the immediate future, certainly not for things where you need massive extraction like hydrocarbons, which, you know, we need to get we need to move away from anyway. Otherwise, Antarctica is going to look like a very different place. Um, but there are there are going to be some challenges, I think, if we find um, pockets of rare earths. Uh, where there's more kind of competition. So at the moment, you you cannot go and get them. Um, and I hope that endures and remains the, the case. But I think that debate will become more live uh, if there are things that you can only really find in Antarctica or very hard to find elsewhere. And do you uh, periodically revisit the, the uh, environmental protocol that you mentioned? Well, the, the Environmental Protocol actually establishes a Committee of Environmental Protection and they have to give advice to the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting every year. So actually, the, the protocol is an incredibly live document. And actually, that's the that's the agreement that says if you're going to go to Antarctica, you need to plan what you're going to do. You need to do an environmental impact assessment. You need to mitigate any environmental impacts that you might have. Uh, and to go to Antarctica, you need permission from your host government so uh, within Polar Regions Department, we issue permits for people who want to go to Antarctica and we make sure that they, uh, their expedition or whatever activity they're going to do is compliant with the protocol. So, yes, it's a very, it's a very live document. Um, and indeed, this year is also the 60th anniversary of the entry into force of the treaty uh, and the parties at their meeting um, back in June 
uh, we all agreed um, to the indefinite pro, you know, the indefinite longevity of the treaty and its protocol. So yeah, it is a it is a live document. That's kind of answered my next question, which was going to be along the lines of, are people worried about new pressures in the 21st century? Um, Does the agreement uh, need modernising? But it sounds like it's an annually reviewed document. Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly, exactly. For... for, um yeah, for the, for the Antarctic Treaty, I mean, the Antarctic Treaty itself is very short uh, and it, its primary purpose was to set aside all of these territorial claims that I mentioned at the beginning uh, and in, and set up a, a way that the international community would, would look after Antarctica kind of collectively. Uh, then the, the, the next agreements that were made were there was an agreement about um, the conservation of Antarctic seals because there was a concern, this was in the 1970s, that there might be a return to commercial sealing um, now, thankfully, that's never happened uh, and nobody's expressed any interest of, of harvesting seals in Antarctica. But subsequent to that, in 1980, there was an agreement, uh, the Camelot Agreement that I mentioned at the beginning. So that's the Convention for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources. And this convention said uh, was all about the, the marine environment, basically. And it says that we need to conserve the marine environment. Um, in doing so, you can, however, fish. So it was a kind of resource extraction agreement in the 1980s, and that's still the case. So it's still possible to fish around Antarctica. Uh, whereas when the protocol came into force in, in the 1990s, that was very much about establishing Antarctica as a, as a, a reserve for peace and science. So there is a, a sort of a little bit of tension between uh, the more progressive protocol, which is only 30 years uh, old this year, uh, and Camelot which is 40 years old uh, in April. Uh, so, yes, the fishing kind of uh, the part of the, of the agreement ha- has a little bit more, more leeway to it. So there's a lot of debate at the moment about enhancing protection around Antarctica. So Camelot provides this kind of protection that, that ensures that we conserve the Southern Ocean. Uh, but there are certain areas of the Southern Ocean that really do need to be set aside um, where the animals are, are particularly, you know, in competition for, for fish and things that we might want to catch. Uh, so we're seeking the establishment of marine protected areas around Antarctica. We've got two right now, and there are three others that we would quite like to, to see agreed so that we can really make sure that we've got that balance right uh, of, of all the different areas that need to be set aside completely to ensure that we can deliver conservation. The marine protected areas are a really interesting part of marine biology and geography. Um, off the top of my head, I think one is the Ross Sea um, and the other one was a proposed uh, protected area for the Weddell Sea, which we've been talking about a lot today, but that didn't go through, I think. Is that correct? So the first marine protected area that was agreed uh, by Camilla was in the South Orkneys. It was a British proposal, so we're very proud of it. Uh, it was a relatively modest proposal it's, um, and it was a, a kind of test really as to how you would establish uh, these areas of marine protection. Uh, so that was that. That sort of set the scene. Then the next one that was agreed was the the Ross Sea Marine Protected Area. That's a million square kilometres. So you know, kind of ten times larger, much more ambitious. Uh, so the other ones that we're we're now considering is uh, one for the Weddell Sea, as you as you rightly mentioned, one for East Antarctica, and one around the Antarctic Peninsula. And those kind of discussions are ongoing. Um, and we are optimistic of, of eventually making some progress uh, to ensure that we've got a network of marine protected areas. And we've mentioned uh, fishing on and off. Um, what are the challenges facing the continent? 
in the 21st century, over the next 60 to 80 years, um, krill fishing pops into my head um, as an example of something that countries diverge over. Yeah, well, I think the absolute biggest challenge to Antarctica comes from climate change. So, you know, the ocean is warming around Antarctica. That's changing the the ice dynamics. It's uh, causing glaciers to to, um, speed up, as we've mentioned, with the Thwaites Glacier. Uh, That really changes, you know, the environment completely. We did a study on kind of what does 1.5 degree warm world look like? And it looks like six degrees of warming over the winter around the Antarctic Peninsula. So some quite dramatic changes. And those changes will will change everything. Uh, so if you've got less sea ice kind of forming over the winter, then that's likely to have a implication for how much krill uh, productivity you get. And krill is the is the basic food stuff of everything that lives in Antarctica. The 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 bird, the seabirds, the what the, the fish, the whales, the seals all rely on krill. So if you're kind of completely changing the the biodiversity of the of the Southern Ocean, then we've got some really big unknowns. So the biggest challenge, I think, for us as kind of managers of of Antarctica is to make sure that we're not exacerbating uh, the implications of climate change through kind of, you know, unmanaged human activity, that we give the animals chance to adapt uh, to these changes that are are very likely to happen to them. And finally, do you have any uh, projects or visits on the horizon in 2021 or beyond, personally or as a department? Well, we have a, we have a bit of a COVID pandemic challenge right now, um, which of course is is making everything a little bit more challenging. Uh, we we do like you know as a department to try and get somebody to go to Antarctica or or to South Georgia um, if we can every year. So we're very optimistic that um, we will be able to to join uh, the patrol of the um, the Royal Navy's ice patrol vessel HMS Protector. Uh, will will deploy hopefully very shortly. Um, so hopefully we can we can get down on that. The British Antarctic Survey have got big big projects, um, including a redevelopment of of one of the st- the station at Rothera. So yeah, there'll definitely be British activity in Antarctica. Whether whether I personally will get there, I I just keep my fingers crossed for the time I get to go back. And I believe there's an expedition going out to the Weddell Sea to try and trace Shackleton Shackleton's endurance uh, for 2022. So that's to come as well. Yes, I mean that's a that's a hugely ambitious project. It's it's the second time that that it's been uh, attempted. Uh, I think the last one was was uh, slightly thwarted by the 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 breakup of the of, of a, well, a very large carving from the Larsen ice shelf. Uh, so it, yeah, it's a very challenging place to get to. Um, likely to be ice covered, uh, but yeah, to to find to find the location of where where the endurance went down would be epic. Thank you very much for joining us today, Jane. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.